Before we go to the Word, let's pray and ask the Lord that He would guide us in it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for allowing us to be in your house today. We pray that you would bless the reading of your word. And I pray that you would protect me from error and foolish things. And I pray that you would be exalted above all things. Well, thank you so much for your mercy and the love that you've given us through Christ Jesus. Guide us as we look to your word. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning we will be in Second Corinthians chapter 4. And I'm so thankful um, of God's, for God's providence and what Andy spoke on Wednesday night and what we went through in Sunday school this morning. Um, because really, all of it goes together. And, and when you're dealing with Scripture, all of it does go together. But sometimes when you read Judges, you're like, how does that go in with Second Corinthians chapter 4 about living in light of eternity? Um, but it does, it does connect it's from the same author. One thing that I have been confounded by since really when I preached through the book of Philippians at First Baptist Church in, in Benton, was this idea that Paul has in his writings of what I have no better way of calling other than an eternal perspective. In every moment of his life, Paul's concern is not what is happening before him ultimately, but he sees the things that are happening before him in light of what God has accomplished in eternity, eternal realities, rather than the temporal ones. And in doing so, in focusing on that and the eternal realities, he does not jettison the present. He still acknowledges the reality of what is happening before him, but he, he understands them in an eternal way. And I honestly believe that as Christians, one of the things that is so important is that we shepherd this idea that the promises of God are more substantial and more real than the chairs that you sit in, than the things that you eat, than the things that you see. Because truthfully, and that is his conclusion at the end of the passage today, that the things that are temporal are transient. They're, They're passing away. But that which is eternal is yours. He says this also in Ephesians chapter 1 when he says every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is yours in Christ Jesus. That means that every spiritual blessing for all time, if you're in Christ, is already yours. You may not see that. It may not help you in this very moment and you're thinking about the things that are going on in the world. But when we shepherd that idea of having eternity in our hearts, that what God is using, even though this moment counts forever, it is just temporary. <clears throat> so we'll go read the text. If you will stand in the honor of the reading of God's word, Second Corinthians chapter four, verse seven. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. 
perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for the sake, for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is God's Word. Very briefly, I want to speak about Paul's experience with the Corinthian church. You have a man who deeply cares for a bunch of motley crew Christians, is what I like to call it. When you read the book of 1 Corinthians, you see a lot of people that look like myself, and probably like you, you see a lot of people who are struggling, people who deal with sin and have real problems and, and struggle with worldliness. And Paul's great concern for these people who care, he cares so much for them that he's willing to tell them the truth, the hard things, because he loves them so much. And he had developed this affection for the Corinthian church. When you read the commentators, you're likely to find that most of them will say that 2 Corinthians, as it shows up in your Bible, is not really the 2 Corinthians. This is likely the third letter that he wrote to the Corinthian church. Regardless of that, they, well, they say that the second letter was so bad that, that we couldn't handle it, or things like that. I'm like, well, God intended for what we have, so thank you for that. But, uh, but it, it's interesting that Paul continually writes to these people because he cares for them and deals with the hard things. And even in 2 Corinthians, you come to understand that there is a group of people in the Corinthian church that he affectionately names super apostles that are calling him out as not being really qualified for ministry in a way. They're saying, Paul, you're weak. You can't speak. You're not worthy to be called this. If if you truly were to be used by God, then you would have all of these things figured out. You wouldn't be suffering in the way that you are. You would be able to fluently tell us everything we need to know and not have any trouble speaking. And they were calling into question his validity as a minister in a way. And so 2 Corinthians can also be viewed as essentially Paul's appeal to God for the reason that his ministry exists. Appeal, appeal before them that God is the one who has established this. And that's why he says things like when he talks about his thorn in the flesh, when I am weak, I am strong. He shows the true nature of the gospel that it's not about how strong you are. 
It's not about how good you are. It's not about how fluent you are in the Scripture. It's not about how, how mighty your speech is. Truly, the power of God lies with God Himself. And when we read this today, you see this idea. He starts off in verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're kind of starting in the middle of Paul's thought process here because we don't have time to go through the first six verses. But Paul says in chapter 4 early on that we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves and everyone's in the sight of God. They are not going to change God's Word in order to appeal to the people around them to make it seem more influential than it is. It is the Gospel. He's not changing this Gospel. And he goes on, he says things like, if the Gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the Gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But what, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. He's saying this is not about me being a good man, like a really powerful minister who's able to do all of these things. I'm not trying to be eloquent with these people. I'm trying to tell them the truth. We're not veiling the gospel. We're not using cunning to try and do these things. We speak clearly. And he goes on because of these, the charge that these folks have put against him. And he says, but we have this treasure. And what is the treasure? in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And immediately when I got to this text, I thought about terracotta pots and going to Lowe's. The terracotta pot is just a vessel for what you are buying. It may be pretty, but most people take things out of terracotta pots, right? I mean, it may be pretty, but really, if you've ever messed with terracotta, it's worthless. I mean, it's like you drop it one time, you set it down a little too hard, crack. It's not really, you're not buying a plant at Lowe's for the pot that it's in, typically. You're buying it for what is housed inside. And Paul uses that. That's kind of a rudimentary way of describing what I see here in, in, in my experience. That we are vessels for God's glory. The, the vessel is not the important thing. You were made to house the glory of God. I think about question one of the confession. What is man's chief and highest end? It's to glorify God and join Him forever. You were made for this purpose. If you are a human being in this world, that is why you exist. And Paul says that we are housing an unbelievable treasure. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. God uses these things that He has prepared us for. When we think about a terracotta pot, it's not good to go through storms. It can be broken very easily, like I said, when it's set down. And He goes on to describe His experience as a minister, as an apostle. And in a lot of ways, it's our experience as well. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Fragile pots. Afflicted. But their ultimate end 
is not to be crushed if you're in Christ. Paul uses these things that were very real for him. You think in in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul gives his testimony about all the things that he went through. And he does it. He says, I'm speaking as a foolish man. He's not boasting about all the things he went through so you could just say, oh man, sorry about that. You've been through a lot. But he acknowledges the reality that there is real affliction temporally in this world. He understands the present as being really afflicted, being beaten, being shipwrecked, all of these things. But he always follows it up by the ultimate truth for those who are in Christ. But not crushed. Yes, your affliction is real, but you are not crushed because Christ is on the throne. You are His. Yes, you may be a fragile clay jar, but Christ is on the throne. He says, I'm perplexed. But we don't despair. Why do we not despair? It's real perplexity that we live in. We don't despair because Christ is on the throne. Are we persecuted? Maybe not in our immediate context, but we could be very soon. Christ has not turned away. You are not forsaken. You may be struck down, but ultimately you are not destroyed in Christ. And so this idea that he comes with that he he at the end of chapter four, when he says we look to the things that are unseen, the unseen realities are what he uses to judge the temporal truth that is in front of him, the things that he he is experiencing, the affliction, the perplexity, the persecution and this being struck down. He views all of those things rightly. We talked Wednesday night about judging things rightly. And we are called to, as Christians, to take God's Word and to look at things rightly. And sometimes we can get in the slew of despond in the immediate context of our life and we forget about the truth of what God has done. It doesn't make the slew of despond go away. But it gives you what you need by God's power and through His Spirit to continue. So we see here, right at the very beginning, Paul is flying in the face of these super apostles saying, oh yeah, we are afflicted. Oh yeah, I am. But God. And just like we read this morning, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Amen to that. He goes on. And he actually shows that being a super apostle who never suffers and never goes through bad things is actually really not what the Scripture points to in the Christian life. He actually turns that, on its head, turns that idea on its head and he says a Christian affliction points to the Savior. He goes on in verse 10 after describing those things. He says, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. He's talking about his ministry. Understanding this, he knows that he is going to go through affliction as he shares the gospel. He's going to go through these things and he does. In his immediate context, he truly does. And, and <laughs> he does that. He goes through these things. He suffers affliction so that Christ may be glorified and manifested. He goes on, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, 
so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. This reminds me of what Jesus says in John chapter 16, where he begins to describe, understand this, you will be persecuted for my name's sake. You will suffer affliction because my name abides with you. And truly, it is a blessing to suffer for the name of Christ. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul says that it was granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. This idea that we are not at home in this world, that you will suffer, is all through the scripture. It, it flies in the face of all of these things that the world may say, why would I want to be a Christian if I have to suffer? Why would I want to do these things? There are, there are so many Christians who tell me that if I believe enough, if I do the right things enough, that I won't suffer. And really, wasn't that what Job's friends asked him? If you were really righteous, Job, if you really knew God, then this, none of this would be happening. It's definitely because of how awful you are and <laughs> all of these sins that you've done. We do suffer because of sin. But what a blessing it is to suffer for the name of Christ in the midst of a foreign land. I love when I think about this idea that Christ came and He humbled Himself to the point of death. And I love what the writer of Hebrews says. Therefore, in chapter 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I submit to you, brothers and sisters in Christ, that Jesus the God-man understood the eternal realities and what He was doing in this temporal realm perfectly. And I think that as we go on as Christians and we look at the Word of God, that you see this idea that always the heavenly realities must interpret your temporal, what you're going through immediately in your immediate context. And so when we look around at the world and we look at the things that are going on, we should acknowledge we don't have to be um, false to the reality that there are things going on that we don't like that are difficult. It's not easy to go through times of inflation and whatever, fill in the blank of whatever thing may be plaguing your mind. But the truth is, is that eternally in Christ, you have a home. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for you. He is sitting on the throne. You will and probably uh, are going to suffer for the rest of your life in different ways. And, and you're going to have seasons of suffering and seasons um, of joy and great joy. But all of those things must be examined with the truth of what God has done right next to those things. Otherwise, you may be overcome by the weight of some of the things. And I, I, I'm sure that there were some nights that Paul in the midst of being shipwrecked or beaten or put into prison, nearly killed, probably had a few moments. But that reminder of what he has done, of who he was in Christ, that was the sustenance. It wasn't the things of the world, the things that he could buy, the fact that he could just, it was so in his bones 
to preach the truth of God that he would be willing to call be called a foolish man and to suffer for the sake of Christ, always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifested through him. And I ask you as a Christian here this morning, if you know Christ, is that your testimony? Are you willing to not necessarily go get yourself killed, but are you willing to sacrifice temporal comfort for the heavenly reality? It was obviously something that motivated Paul to continue looking at the face of death and knowing so fervently in his heart that Christ was his Lord, that he would be willing to die. And next week, when we look in Philippians chapter one, for he says, you know, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. We say that so many times in cliches, but is that true of you? And I think it should be it, just like it is. It should be of me. And it, I must have the scripture before me to be reminded of the truth that those things I can really have that hope, that faith that I say, no matter what happens, that the Lord is on the throne and that because of what Christ has accomplished before God, I can have peace and joy in this moment. And number three, he describes this momentary affliction as it's light and momentary. In verse 13, since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. So we also believe and so we also speak. Just a quick aside, I love seeing the way that Paul quotes the psalmist, because in, in verse 13, that's what he's doing. He is quoting um, Psalm 116. I'm comforted by the fact that the Psalms gave Paul comfort. And he uses he used the psalm in the same way that we look back and we go, praise the Lord. These things speak the truth now. But he quotes that in Psalm 116.10, as I believed even when I spoke, I'm greatly afflicted. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us from the dead. Paul has hope in the promise of the resurrection of Christ and that we will be resurrected along with them. He endures affliction because of that hope. Likewise, Christian, let the heavenly reality and the promises of God sustain you in the world. He who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise you. And that's why we can look at these things as light and momentary, as he says in verse 17 or in verse 16. Do not lose heart, though our outer soul, our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. God is working in this moment. I spent some time reading morning and evening, usually every day. And Spurgeon, in the last few days, has, on June 10th, I read this and I wanted to read it. If God had willed it, each of us might have entered into heaven at the moment of conversion. It was not absolutely necessary for our preparation for immortality that we should tarry here. It is possible for a man to be taken into heaven and to be found to 
found meet to be our partaker of the inheritance of the saints in light, though he has just believed in Jesus. It is true that our sanctification is a long and continued process, and we shall not be perfected till we lay aside our bodies and enter within the veil. But nevertheless, had the Lord so willed it, he might have changed us from imperfection to perfection and have taken us to heaven at once. Why then are we here? Would God keep his children out of paradise a single moment longer than was necessary? Why is the army of the living God still on the battlefield when one charge might give them the victory? Why are his children still wandering hither and thither through a maze when a solitary word from his lips would bring them into the center of their hopes in heaven? The answer is that they are there that they may live unto the Lord and may bring others to know his love. We remain on earth as sowers to scatter good seed, as plowmen to break up the fallow ground, as heralds publishing salvation. We are here as the salt of the earth to be a blessing to the world. We are here to glorify Christ in our daily life. We are here as workers for him and as workers together with him. Let us see that our life answers its end. I submit to you that what Spurgeon says is essentially what Paul is saying here. So we don't lose heart. God has a purpose in keeping us here in this moment. You may wonder why does He not remove me from all of the things that may be happening. But the truth is is that God has a purpose and God is working to manifest Christ Jesus in the midst of our suffering. In the midst of it. So we should embrace the reality that it is difficult to be in this world as a Christian. But the, the truth is, is that when we think about what Christ has done, that is the motivating factor for everything that we must do. Because even though it may be real and it may be intense, this is just but for a season. Even though, as R.C. Sproul says, right now counts forever. The things that we are experiencing here, the things that Paul experienced, he viewed as light and momentary, as preparing us for eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 1, verse 14, verse 1 through 4. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. No matter the affliction, perplexity, persecution, strickenness, we are and will be going to where Jesus is if Christ is your Lord. Praise the Lord for that truth. Because that can never be taken from you if you're in Christ. Is this your testimony? That despite what is happening and the full weight of the things that are happening in your life, 
that Christ is on the throne and He has prepared a place for you. And when you are tempted to enter into the slew of Desmond, to be despondent about your present moment, speak the truth to that. That Christ has gone to do something eternally for you that has nothing to do with how good you are or how, how righteous you can be or how you can suffer well through this. I think every sermon, I think about the song, Rock of Ages, Augustus Top Lady wrote, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And really, not to be reductionistic, that's what Paul says here. The cross is his promise. The cross is his promise. And then finally, we wrap up looking at verse 18, just to reinforce what we've already said. It says, back up to verse 17, this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Nothing compares. Not the best day on this world, not the worst day. He says, as we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, always changing. But the things that are unseen are eternal. We must look at our present moment with the context of eternity crouching at the door. The things of Christ, things that He has accomplished, are infinitely more substantive than anything you can see, touch, or hold. And I ask you, brother or sister, do you have the hope of eternity in your heart? When I think about this, I can't help also but think about the reality that though I have peace in Christ, there are people who do not have Christ. And that their greatest hope is the hope of this world. And if you're without Christ this morning, then what hope do you have? We read in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God has put eternity into the hearts of men. What hope do you have for eternity? If you do not have Christ, then you cannot say, as Paul says, afflicted and not crushed. Rather, you may be afflicted, but it is certain that you will be crushed by the holiness of God apart from Christ. You may be perplexed, but you have not even grazed the depths of despair you will, you will have if you remain in your sin and don't entrust by faith in the Savior of men and women. You may be struck down, but it is nothing in comparison to the destruction that awaits the one who remains in their sin. If you do not have Christ as your hope, please cling to the Savior. Because what He has done, as He says in John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. What He has done in preparing a place. What He did in coming here and living and dying for you and for me. That's only one thing that separates any person from another person. Is that they have Christ. So this morning, if you do not have Christ, as the only hope for clay pots, not to be destroyed. Trust in Him. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, thank you for today. I thank you despite my infinite fragility that you are rock solid. Lord, help us not to trust in chariots. Help us not to trust in our own strength to accomplish things. Lord, help us to be informed by the reality that if you don't build the house, we build in vain. If you don't watch over the city, we watch in vain. Lord, I pray that you would help your people have peace in knowing that what you are doing is what will sustain them despite the ebbs and flows of the world. And I pray that if there are those who don't have the hope of what you have done, they haven't trusted that their sins are absolved in you, paid for, that they would trust in you, the Savior. Father, help us to live with an eternal perspective on our present reality. It's all this in Christ. Amen.